0: they are going to stretch us, and um, it, it's just going to be what it is, so just know that when we're going into it. Um, it what we're going to talk about this morning primarily is, uh, is the idea of sustaining the fire of the Lord, and really what it means that we would be a people that, Understand what it means for there to be a revival that remains, and we set the stage. I, 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 I think I mean we tried anyway uh, on Thursday night um, with the, the the concept that revival is supposed to be something that grows and increases. Um, specifically, we talked about the the comparison between the Old Testament. Where the fountains of the deep were broken up, and the, the, the rain of of um, uh, the rain from heaven, as well as the the opening up of the aquifers. Eli, uh, if you would hit the, the slide for me. I've got the, the, the um, and uh, we compared that with the New Testament in how that the, the literally the glory of the Lord is to cover the earth. The, the, there's a few things that I want to say, and I, I'm going to tell you a few things because I want this to 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 touch. Your faith okay because here's the thing revival that stops here is marginal in its impact every revival that is noted in history left the church does that make sense every revival that is noted in history left the church um, one of my favorite revival stories—I mentioned this on, on Thursday—but is in the Hawaiian Islands. Just around the 1920s, and 1930s, there was such an outpouring of the in Hawaii that the entire island, with the the um, they, they estimate, the entire island with the uh, um, exception of about a dozen people, got saved. Some of these things, I want to say this in a way that's not critical. Some of the things that we think are impossible are impossible because of the way we've been trying to accomplish it. Because of the way we viewed evangelism, the fact that that, that what he's doing in here could penetrate out there evangelistically becomes impossible. Because we didn't ever have anything that was worth offering. Here's a good question. If all you have to offer somebody is heaven after they die, then why wouldn't it be best that they die as soon as they get sick? I'm serious. If the best thing that we have to offer is heaven when somebody dies, then wouldn't it just be easier if we just walk around with a Bible and a pistol? So the, the that's not enough. It's just not enough. And to be very honest with you, that's not the point. I, I've said this recently, but I really wish that that we could for at least a moment. Now I believe in heaven heaven uh, uh, being our, our reward at the end of our life, whatever happens becomes or or whatever, whatever happens. We're not getting into that. That would be a rabbit trail that I would not recover from. So I believe in that. However, the reality of it is, I almost wish that we could remove it from the equation of people's relationship with God to see who really wants to know Him. Do you want to go to heaven, or do you want to know the Creator of the universe as your Father? Because in my opinion, a person that is only in a relationship because of heaven as their reward, will never be able to broker heaven here. A person that only serves because of heaven that they get to go to there will never be able to broker it here. It's just that simple. you realize that that's why Jesus said all of that stuff about the kingdom of heaven? All of that stuff that he said about uh, where your trust is, being able to inherit the kingdom of heaven. All of that. Man, I could really, really mess with you. I won't. There are some passages that we have equated to salvation that have nothing to do with getting saved. There are some things that Jesus said. In fact, I would say about 80% of the scriptures that we use to describe the need for people to get saved and accept Jesus, that Jesus said, have nothing to do with anybody getting saved and have everything to do with the kingdom of heaven coming here. Why? Because the idea of them getting to go to heaven if they accepted Jesus wouldn't make any sense to the people he was preaching to anyway. Remember, Christianity didn't like to start here. Didn't start after Jesus' death. Didn't start... The, the I, I didn't start in America. It, the idea of the message of the gospel of the kingdom was the thing that Jesus preached, and he was always trying to be able to deal with the people who would actually have the authority to welcome heaven here. not saying we don't need to be saved. I'm not saying we shouldn't preach that Jesus is the Savior. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just simply saying there's more. So within this, we're actually trying to determine and, and, and come with an understanding that says, Father, you want this thing... To be sustainable, because true fruit is fruit that remains. The Lord—I've got a little bit—I'm going to read to you. The Lord initiates every great move of God, but it is the priests that keep it burning. Remember, if you would help me, I forgot to pass these out. But you, okay? All right, thank you. The Lord initiates every of God, but it is the priests that keep it going, or keep it burning. Here's the reality. Scripturally speaking, if, if we find, and if we believe, you know, many, many times we've heard that, that when God comes, you know, He's described as fire, you know, He's described as the burning of our hearts. In fact, one of the passages we were going to look at uh, uh, during Easter was, in their encounter with the Lord on the road to Emmaus. Remember that road to Emmaus story where Jesus walked with two of the disciples that didn't recognize him? And there's two points of that that I think are maybe the most fascinating that we have never seen. Number one is the fact that they walked with Jesus. Now, these are not strangers. These are disciples. It says that in Luke's gospel. The two men on the road to Emmaus were disciples of Jesus. However, they walked with him for miles, never recognizing that it was Jesus Until the Bible says they sat at the table with him, and their eyes were open, and they knew that it was Jesus. How many people have walked with him, but never known him because they never learned to sit at the table? The other thing about that is, the the response of being at the table with him is they said, when Jesus disappeared, thank you. When Jesus disappeared, the reaction was, didn't our hearts all burn within us? So there's something about an encounter with Him that creates this, this burning, this passion. And the reality is, as we talked about on Thursday night, that thing of God is sovereign. We can't make it come. We can't conjure it into happening. However, we do believe that, scripturally speaking, the fire of God Always falls on sacrifice. I I feel like I'm starting easy, but if it's going to be this hard, you're going to make me work this hard, we're going to have a long way to go. The fire of God always falls on sacrifice. We can agree about that, right? Elijah, obviously, they poured the water on it. fire came from heaven. You find that over and over and over and over again. This sacrifice is one of the requirements. We also understand that It says in the first passage you have here, Leviticus 9, 23 and 24, that the fire of the Lord is something that He causes to come. It's sovereign in nature. But Leviticus 6, 8 through 13 define how the priests were to keep the fire burning. So it was God's job, if I can use that language, job to bring the fire. It was the priest's job to maintain it. So the idea of a revival that remains, of a sustaining fire, it is absolutely based upon the principle of the sovereignty, but it is in in many ways partnered with by our willingness to sustain it, to um, to adhere to it, to care for it, to steward it, if you will. He has caused, uh, called us, excuse me to be the first generation in history that passes a revival to the next generation and actually sees it increase. Never in history, period, never in history has there been a move of God that He actually causes to fall upon a generation of people and then the next generation carries it forward or sees it increase. Never. Never. We talked Thursday night about the principle of why that happens, that fourfold cycle, if you will, about what happens when the banks are created to try to partner with Him in the move of the Spirit, and ultimately how that turns into memorials. And if we're not careful, those memorials are what will be roadblocks, if I can use that, to the next generation being able to see what God wants to do freshly. We see this promise of Jesus that says, and and this is something I had never thought about in this context, but when you look at the promise of Jesus coming, it actually says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. So, that gives us the very clear understanding that the line of separation that happened when Jesus was born. Remember, that we think about that, and we all get really happy about that, because when we think about we're talking about the millennial reign. How many of the promises of God do we have a much easier time uh, uh, applying, and, and it's easier for us to just say, oh, that's what's going to happen after the rapture, when, when Jesus comes, and he's in charge, and he's living in the White House. All of this stuff is going to make perfect sense. If you think the government of Jesus being established looks like him in the Oval Office, you've got issues because you know what I love America but it's my favorite Babylon it's still Babylon it's still Babylon it's my favorite Babylon but it's not the kingdom I'm sorry but it's just not and the same American nationalism that we're dealing with today that is perverting Christianity is the same Ameri- or same nationalism that Jesus tried to overturn with Israel. He blatantly rejected Israeli nationalism and said, I'm not here to establish a natural kingdom. I'm here to establish a heavenly kingdom. Find me a time that Jesus went and tried to impress the rulers of Israel alone. And find him with the poor. By the Jordan, you find him with people that were hungry for truth, not people who were in power and influence. So, when we see of the increase of his government, there will be no end. The idea of this is. That when Jesus came, He drew the line. Remember, the Prince of Peace, We uh, that wonderful promise that you see out of Isaiah and Ezekiel, that promise about what Jesus is going to bring as a child. Remember, that's not at the end. That's not when He comes and, and the, the, the trumpet is blown and we all shoot out of our Dr. shoals and, and you know all of our clothes are neatly folded and we meet each other in the eastern sky. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about when Jesus comes as the Messiah, from that point the line is drawn And then there is the opportunity for what he did to become uh, multiplied, if you will, generational. And if you don't believe that, then you have some real issues with most of what he told the disciples. As an example, these things and greater things will you do. Jesus broke the mold when it comes to passing on and in embracing and empowering people to be more than you have been. Jesus took a bunch of people that most of us wouldn't allow in our churches and told them that they were going to be able to do greater things than he had done. That should mess with us. If it doesn't, you don't get it. Most of these people, we wouldn't allow to take up our offering. Yet they so much power that they came to Jesus and thought it was believable or possible that they had enough authority, hear me, that they could call down fire from heaven and consume an entire city. Jesus didn't call into question that they actually had that much authority. Do you realize that when they did that they had just got done, Jesus sent out the disciples and told them, cast out devil's ears, all that kind of stuff, right? They went out to their own cities. This is a whole other boy. Like, there's the line, Jerry. I'm trying to stay on this side of it. So, they go out to their own city. We don't know what happened. But whatever happened in their own city was so incredible, so mind-boggling in the power that they moved in, that when they came back, they felt like they had enough authority to consume Cities with heavenly fire. I have no idea what these guys have experienced, but it must have been pretty cool if you feel like you have enough power that you can call down heavenly fire and consume cities. And Jesus did not do anything to tell them what they were dreaming of or the the power they were moving in is wrong. He just simply said, yep, there's fruitfulness. Let me just... The point of this is, of the increase, there's not supposed to be any end. It's supposed to continue to grow and to grow and to grow and to grow. The role of church government. to I'm going I'm to talk a little bit about some of our country's history, too, because this is, uh, is, is just a good parallel that I found. So, one of the primary components, because Jesus said, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. So, one of the primary components of sustained revival, or government, if you will, is correctly aligned authority. Of the increase of their government, there will will be no end. So one of the primary ideas, you will not have a sustainable revival culture if you do not have proper authority alignment. Just the way it is. And the role, however, that really messes with people because then they think you're getting into this weird, you know, kiss my feet thing. And, and uh, it's the absolute opposite of that. In fact, I was reading a document that Thomas Jefferson wrote about our government when the founders of this country were establishing what our government, what the goal of our government was. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but our government was founded by anarchists. Realistically speaking, our government was founded by people who rebelled against tyranny. So, I mean, these guys were a little bit jaded about government, if I can just say it that way. But they also understood, and this is a really cool thought, you realize that the benefit of disillusionment is the loss of illusion. They had become disillusioned with what government was, which means that you are then liberated from the illusion of what isn't real so you can actually inherit what's real. So what they said the twofold goal of government is is to protect and empower. It's that simple. The goal of government, Thomas Jefferson said this, is to protect the innocent and to empower every citizen. Do you realize that in church it, that is the primary goal of proper authority structure? It's all. I don't care if it's in a job, in a workplace, if it's in church, if it's within a family, if it's whatever it might be. The goal is to protect when someone is vulnerable or those that are most vulnerable and to empower people to be able to be what they don't think they can be. I've said this before, but if my primary responsibility is that when I'm around you, I want you to feel more hopeful than you thought possible about what you can achieve. I want my influence, more than anything else, to cause someone to actually feel that the impossible is possible for them. That the dreams that they have are achievable and attainable of what God has called them to be, because only within that am I achieving my goal of empowering you to be more than you are, and then also establishing an atmosphere and a realm here that protects those that are vulnerable, that is safe enough for people to be obedient, surrender, and exposed so that then they can move into empowerment. Are you with me so far? Because that is a requirement if we want to have sustainable revival. We've got to be able to we've got to be able to guard people when they're vulnerable and empower them to go forward. It's that simple. It literally is that simple. If people can't come here and make a mess, then we've missed it. If they can't come here and get it wrong, we've blown it already. If somebody, you know, just totally blowing it, that is in the company of this house is not possible. We've already missed the primary goal of what Jesus said comes with government. What comes with government is the same way He treated His disciples. If they could blow it and He never called them out in front of anybody, He never made them feel stupid, He would just say, I I like what you're doing there, but let's just correct this little thing here. You know, they came back to Jesus and said, this guy is casting out devils and we told him to stop because he's not part of our group. You know what that first of all tells me is? That this isolationist mentality that the Christian church has is absolutely anti biblical. That absolutely tells me that we're in the wrong when we say if someone's not in our group, they haven't heard God. Why? Because Jesus had that, and what he told them is if they're not for us, or if they're not, excuse me, if they're not against us, they're for us. And so all he did was just corrected it just a little bit. Why? Because that's the role of government. To deal with those things and empower them to go forward. Never to block them from being what they're supposed to be. So, we have the foundation uh, of an atmosphere of honor. The things of the Lord, That's the, the, the reality is that two-fold role of government can only exist in an atmosphere of honor. You can only protect the vulnerable and empower people to move forward when there's an atmosphere of honor. We know that. The things that the Lord, uh, the things of the Lord, excuse me, are stewarded in the same way that parents would steward finances so they can pass something on to their children. The thought being that you want your children to not have to fight or suffer where you have fought and suffered. If we looked at the inheritance of our national freedom the way we looked at our spiritual inheritance, we would think that every generation needed to fight the British again. every generation would need to have a revolutionary war if we looked at our national freedom the way we looked at our spiritual freedom. We can't do that. The root of revival is hunger through brokenness. But passion is what makes... Okay, we're getting ready to make the jump. You ready? Don't look it, but I'll just say we're ready. Passion is what makes discipline pleasurable. why the root of revival has to be hunger and passion for Him. Why? Because passion is what makes brokenness something that we delight to offer to Him. Our passion for Him is what makes our dying a delight to lay before our Father's feet. Passion and desire to know Him is something that is a requirement. Requirement for revival to be sustainable. Uh, sustainable? Why? Because if not, all we have is principles, and principles were never designed to sustain us. Principles alone will keep you in discipline, but they will never provide you with passion. That's why runners run until they get high. It's true. Because if not, you're running out of discipline. It's no fun. But if you can run until you feel the the release of what you've experienced when you run, then you can look forward to running again. You become a passionate. You'll never find a passionate runner who doesn't run until they get high. I'll just say that. I'm using high very loosely here. I'm mind you, I'm not. They're not running with crack. High. Okay. Just mind you. Okay. I, I just want to be clear. Those Kenyan guys that come and win the marathon every year don't have a crack pipe that they bring out of their, their leotard as they're running around. Okay? So the idea is that is that that's why passion for him has to be the thing that we guard over individually. Because if I guard over passion, then it allows the discipline or the pruning or the brokenness or the vulnerability to actually be offered in delight. It doesn't feel like His judgment when I can offer it to Him as a gift because I love Him. That's how we can actually come before our Father and give Him the thing that costs us the most is because within that, that deep place of vulnerability, we say this is such a small price because of my hunger and desire and passion to know you. It is nothing in the shadow of my love for you. It's but a drop. It's nothing in but if you don't have that, then everything is going to feel like the price is too high. What does Jesus say about money? You'll either love one and hate the other or you will cling to one and despise the other. What's the whole what's the whole idea is that when you actually are in love, we're, keep it in mind, think it about how it's love and hate and then cling, hold to something and despise. Sometimes we don't realize that we're despising the process of being broken because we're clinging to something that, that we can't let go of because we can't see it as a gift, as an offering. That literally is the sacrifice that it's our job to steward so that fire can remain on the altar. And so when you see this, this reality, I I made this note, the greatest waste of a life is to live without passion. The greatest waste of of a life is to live without passion. Life is too short not to burn for something. Revelation says God's passion for us is so strong that when he looks at us, his eyes are defined as fire. In my opinion, now this is a stretch. If you don't believe me, if you don't like it, if you don't want it, just leave it on the pew. But this is my opinion that it is the closest we can get to his nature when we're in passion. Now, I know you could make the argument for holiness... I know because it says God is holy. I get it. I know you can make the argument for life because God is life. I get all of that stuff. But in reality, everything about Him is passion and hunger. And in my opinion, it is the closest I can get to the demonstration of His nature when I'm in passion. And the truth of it is, when we see this idea of of passion... Passionate people will do things that disciples will never do. People that are just in discipline will never do. It's reality. There is something about passion that makes obedience that we wouldn't give in discipline enjoyable. You remember what it's like when you're a teenager and you get your first crush. first time that you really think, like, yep, this is it. Like, my heart is gone at this moment. Okay? It is out of my body. It is in another person's possession. They can destroy it at any moment. The first time you get that feeling, right? You remember what that feels like. And, I, I'll, you know, the funny part about that stage in life is that you are so, you, nobody has to tell you to be passionate about that person. Nobody has to tell you, like, hey, you need to think about them. Somebody asks you what the weather's going to be that day, and you say their name. You know, the answer to every question at that moment is their name. You know, it's all you can think about. You know, you doodle their name, all, and you fill notebooks with doodles of their name. You 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 write, uh, I, the other day I found a poem. I don't write poems. I found poems that I wrote to Tosh. I don't know if I was drunk. You know, I'm thinking like, what in the world? At 15 years old, I was writing poems. I don't even think I ever gave them to her. I thought, I've never written a haiku before. Where did this come from? I was drunk. Drunk in love, as Beyonce says. So, when you find the idea of what it means to be passionate or in love, it just overtakes you. It's not something that is... You don't think, I need to think about them today. And in reality... If, how do we stay that way? That's the goal that we're actually going to try to tackle today. Because it makes the most difficult thing you might have to do feel like a gift. I would say this. This is really stepping close. If your toes are exposed, then you'll probably catch it. The truth of this is, I actually believe that at that moment that when we, maybe not at the onset, but at the conclusion of the offering of something, where God asks us to give something up or asks us to be broken or be vulnerable or be whatever, if at the end of that it doesn't feel like a gift, then he's probably trying to highlight a place where we're not as passionate as we should be. He's probably trying to deal with a place in us And he's trying to allow the igniting to come. Because once again, fire always falls on the offering. So if in that place the fire is lacking, oftentimes the offering is what he'll utilize to ignite it. Get it? So, we're going to look this morning at probably the, the, the most practical way that I could Address this and we're going to try to be done today. So Hebrews chapter thirteen. I haven't even hit this. hit all of the notes yet. Hebrews chapter thirteen. I told you this is what happens when I'm preaching for two services in a row, and then for a week I get up at two in the morning. And I, I the other morning I talked. you do this morning? I said I wrote six sermons. I don't know what's wrong. It's just this weird thing that happens. So, uh, Hebrews 13, um, when this passage is, is one, of the, one of the coolest things uh, that I've seen recently, because it defines three things that, in my opinion, um, uh, really identify for us how we become that altar. Because scripturally speaking, you find this, in fact, I, I can't remember, I don't think I put it on your sheet, but it says in, in the book of Hebrews um, later, uh, or excuse me, earlier than this, verse 13, uh, through chapter 10, that our heart is the altar. So when you see a, a, the altar of who we are is always our heart. And so our hearts burning passionately for him is the goal. And so what's supposed to happen is we have these three things that, that, that we are going to look at this morning that are the ways you keep the fire burning. Because in my opinion, like I, maybe I'm maybe I'm being too practical about this, but it's some, nice sometimes when we can have a little bit of a recipe. Like it's nice when we can have a one, two, three. Like these are actual tools and practical applications for how we keep the fire burning. Because if we enter the service right now, everybody's going to feel good. But if I ask you later, like how do you keep the fire burning? You do like, oh. How do you stay passionate? I don't know. Just being honest. This is true. So many times we talk about things in church and we never actually give anybody a target to hit. Or maybe we give them a target to hit, but we don't tell them what to hit the target with. So when we're looking at this in Hebrews 13, this is is literally going to be maybe a a more one, two, three than I typically would do. Obedience attracts his fire. A simple shift to embrace his values as my values attracts the fire of God. I'm going to say that again. A simple shift to embrace his values as my values actually attracts the fire. So if the goal is, once again, he sends the fire, I keep it burning. Because we will never have the fire here in this house if we don't first all burn. What keeps, if you can think that there would be an altar that is this house... The the, the the idea is we then become. We are the living sacrifices that are on that altar. As soon as the fire goes out here, I will no longer be willing to be on the altar. As soon as we stop being on the altar, the fire goes out. The, in, and in reality, I've told you this. I mentioned this Thursday night. I've seen it come and go before. I don't want to see that anymore. I've seen it come and leave. I've experienced some of the most incredible times for six months or for a year or for 18 months where God just pours out. And I'm done with those days. And in reality, in my opinion, the thing that I did wrong is I tried to add that to everything we were doing. Anytime he comes in the sovereignty of who he is, that fire is so precious that if it doesn't take precedence over everything else and completely restructure what's important, we're not going to be able to sustain it. And any time he's come before, we've never really, ad- this is me being honest and, and somewhat confessing, now, I, I know you're not sitting in a booth, um, but you know, I guess, here we go. Uh, the um, When you're looking at, if I'm being honest in my own past, I I never adjusted what we were doing. We didn't we didn't adjust our priorities. We just said he's coming and it's great and and we're so grateful for and we enjoyed it. We embraced it. We tried to move with him. But we didn't allow it to restructure and reprioritize. We didn't make any adjustments to where it became the priority. We just added it to the list of what we were doing. since we've been doing this, I've not been telling anybody that they need to pray. Everybody's just been praying. Do you realize, I, I don't know, that I have ever instructed us that we need to be open to the idea of going around and laying hands on one another during prayer or worship and find me a time last when during prayer or worship someone didn't go pray for someone else. Why? Because when you add Him to the list, there's it's easy for us just to stay on the path we're on. When he then becomes the priority, everything else can still well, I'm not saying we've changed what we believe. I'm not saying that all of a sudden now we don't we don't do a lot of the same things we did. The only difference is I've not add, we've not added it to our list. We've made it the list and then everything we are has to align to that. Him coming. Him being here. That fire is so important that we have to just guard it upon the altar saying, I will give everything else and anything I have so that that thing can remain because you being in the room is all that matters. I don't care how we get there. I don't care what else happens. You being in the room is the only thing that's important. And if you're in the room, everything else is going to be fine. It's just that simple. And so obedience and this adjustment within us is oftentimes what begins to actually cause the, 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 the fire of God to come because as I adjust my values to align with his values, what will happen is the fire will burn brightly. One of the one of the weirdest things that I've seen before is how an atmosphere changes when somebody does something, is obedient and, and surrenders and does what God's asked them to do is a sacrifice. And here's an example. You walk into Starbucks God tells you that you're supposed to speak a prophetic word over somebody you've never met. You do that and tell me if Starbucks atmosphere doesn't change. Why? Because it attracts him. I don't understand it, but it attracts him. It's the most bizarre thing in the entire world. Uh, I, I read this story recently about um, this young man who's, uh, in, in a youth group, and uh, he actually, um, you, I think he works at a grocery, but... He, he worked at a grocery. The Lord told him that he was to pray for this woman that was, that was um, I don't know if she had uh, a handicap that was visible or, or what, what it, the scenario was. Prayed for her. She was healed. People around her started getting healed miraculously as a result of that. This went on for six hours in this grocery store. Finally, the manager of the grocery store got over the intercom and said, if you're here and need prayer, go to the produce aisle. kid's 16 years old. Why? Because obedience attracts fire. He just comes. And then as a result of that, it propels and builds upon itself. Because that sacrifice... Now, if, if you... The, the, probably the 50th person that got prayed for, that maybe didn't feel like sacrifice. But I guarantee you that first person he prayed for felt like sacrifice. That was an offering of who he was in vulnerability that cost him something. But when you pay the price to give all you are, he will reciprocate and give all he is. That's the way this works. So, there's three things that are defined here in Hebrews chapter 13. Um, that's important. So you've got the verse that talks about your heart being an altar, but you don't actually have that, that we're going to look at this time. So I'm going to pull up my Bible so that I can so that I can read it correctly. Um, it is in, in Hebrews chapter 15. I I just, I just cut it off. Which is very, very likely. Um, it actually defines that there are three things that are um, that are part of the offering that we're to give to the Lord. And it talks about these three good works, and fellowship. me see uh, verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 13, if you're taking notes. Um, it says, but by him, therefore, actually begins in therefore. And this is an interesting thing. Just mind this in, in your study plot. Anytime you start a verse with therefore, you're in the middle of a thought. Right? So we're actually going to jump into the middle of a thought, because Hebrews 13 is where Paul, sorry, the writer of Hebrews, um, at sums up. What Hebrews is all about. He ties the knot, if you will, to this entire book. And he says here, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. So, these things are are the three things that are identified, if you will, as sacrifices or obedience that attract him. Sacrifice attracts fire. Fire falls on sacrifice. We've determined that. The three things it talks about are praise, good works, and the third one, actually the original Greek word, is fellowship. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means. So when you look at this, two of the three, notice, deal with our interaction with people. Praise, good works, and fellowship. Two of the three deal with our interaction with people. Why? Because oftentimes the greatest sacrifice you offer is going to include others. This. I, I, I Very rarely do I have a hard time giving him a sacrifice of my heart if it's just between me and him. But if I have to include all of you, things get messy. They get a lot more difficult. Why? Because you've rejected you, But people have rejected me. People are gonna look at me like I'm stupid. If you know me, you know that the thing I fear more than anything else in life, the thing I hate more than anything else in life, is looking stupid. I've been that way since I was a little kid. I, I it is my greatest fear and anxiety. He, he deals with it all the time, and I, I hate it. I hate the idea of being wrong. I, hate I was, I, I, I've just always been that way. That I hate looking stupid. And so within that, I'll never look stupid when it's me and him. But if I have to do me and him in front of you, there's a really good chance that I might look foolish. And so two of these three that are defined as a sacrifice, fire falls on sacrifice. So we're talking about how do you guard over passion. One of the ways that one of the things we have to understand about stewarding passion is that two of the three ways you're going to steward passion is going to involve interaction with people. good works and fellowship. One of the challenges within this viewpoint of being spiritual people is we feel at times that natural and relational expressions of his love and nature are somehow lesser class. Hear me. One of the challenges of us being very spiritual in nature, we just want him to come. Let me put this If I told you that you needed to prophesy over everybody in the room and you needed to... let, let, Let me make it really good. If I told you you need to speak in tongues over everybody in the room and then interpret your own tongues as a prophecy to them, or you could go out to lunch with one other person in this room that's not one of your close friends, most of you would choose the former. Why? Because we're spiritual people. If I told you that you could come in here and pray for four hours and you couldn't leave and you had to pray the whole time, or you had to take somebody to Starbucks that you work with that you really don't like, no one in the room would be at Starbucks. Why? Because we consider oftentimes our interactions with people to be a lesser class sacrifice than spiritual offerings. We're a very, 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 very spiritual house. We just are. We have a high regard for the things of the Spirit. But within that, we have allowed that to denigrate the value of interaction that we're supposed to have with people that is actually the scriptural measuring stick for how spiritual you really are. The Scripture indicates clearly, if you love God, say you love God, And don't demonstrate it by how you interact with people. You are a liar. So what he literally is saying is, it is legal to assess somebody's spirituality. I'm not talking that we need to literally sit back and do that. But to to determine, let me say it this way. It is a legal fruit that should demonstrate who I am with him by who I am with you, And if who I am with you is not in the nature of Him, then you have a legal right to question who I am with Him. And we have not done well with that. Sacrifice in many cases is going to be—it's—it's—it's it's, it's illegal to be anything else. It is illegal. It, you realize that the Scripture calls us a liar if we don't demonstrate our passion for Him by demonstrating that nature to others. If we do, don't do that. How do do you realize Jesus took this so far as to say in the Old Testament it says that you are to um, you're to love your neighbor. Jesus actually pushes the button and says that's great I want to move the line further and say love your enemy this is serious stuff he says loving your neighbor is nice but what I say is I want you to love the people that hate you and try to abuse you and despise you and take advantage of you that's serious stuff and so in fact he He actually put legs to that statement to such a degree he allowed them to put him on the cross. I'm sorry, but the theology that says God put him on the cross is not scriptural. People that hated Jesus put him on the cross. Now, he went to the cross for God. There's no question. I'm not saying he wasn't the lamb. But I'm just saying he put legs to that to such a degree that from the cross he demonstrated love when the people that hated him were killing him. Turn their sword against him as a demonstration of this, how important this was. So, we can be a people who speak and are, are within that, It is. it becomes a sacrifice. You can speak truth to people and be blessed and inspired by truth, but it might not be what he's saying. Here's, here's the point When we teach based on principle, we can only succeed on one level. But we are called to a place where our words are actually supposed to carry life. They become a vessel that carries presence, that carries his presence like a glass can carry water. He's actually getting us to a place where we have the opportunity and the authority to introduce people to him. And I don't mean tell them about him. Because principle and truth... Will always inspire and encourage. Presence will transform. And many, many in fact, do you realize when when Joshua that when he was calling Joshua at the beginning of the book of Joshua to lead, to do the impossible, to do the most ridiculous thing in the world? Noah uh, Noah. Moses had been their leader. Can you imagine what it would be like filling those shoes? And when the angel of the Lord comes to him and talks to him, he says, "Meditate on this thing day and night." And meditate on this word day and night. Do you realize he wasn't talking about the Bible? How many times have you been taught that when he's taught, we've said that before. Well, we're to meditate on his word day and night. You do need to meditate on the word of God day and night. That's a great idea. But also, you better make sure that you have time that you're meditating in your heart about what he said about you. Because that's the thing that's going to reassure you. That's the thing that's going to shore you up. Even more so than some scripture that doesn't, that's just a scripture to you. Unless that scripture has become life, it's just truth that's going to inspire you. It will not transform you. We need his presence, and he's actually allowing us and calling us to be a people that carries that presence. So, Matthew then says this: I desire compassion over sacrifice. here's here's the point. Within the idea of of what it means for us to be a people that sacrifice. And we talk a lot about the sacrifice of praise. We talk a lot about what it means to be in thanksgiving. Um, it, it is the context that Jesus says in Matthew, is I desire compassion over sacrifice. He's actually setting the stage or, or giving an understanding of the environment so that sacrifice is effective. He's not saying that, that compassion is more important. What He's saying is, is that sacrifice will in many cases be demonstrated by our compassion? Jerry and and um, and I had a, a walk. Um, we went on. If we were Australian, we'd say we went on a walkabout um, a couple weeks ago in New York. Um, so Mom and Tosh went to uh, the Downtown Abbey exhibit, um, and um, and so Jerry and I had uh, a little bit of time where we were able to to go walk around Central Park, um, and. Um, and so we had probably two hours, hour and a half to kill. And so we walked, and Jerry wanted to see Central Park, and, and we were four or five walks away. Uh, three or four blocks away, and so we went and did that. And it was great. I had a great time. And um, I decided it would be a good opportunity to pick Jerry's brain. Because obviously there's um, – I could do that on any number of topics because the wealth of knowledge sometimes is stunning. And so – I'll just ask Jerry, every once in a while, I'll just ask Jerry questions just to see what he comes up with. And it's always good. It's always good stuff. He's got a saying for everything. That's one guy in the room that's not all hat and no paddle, I can tell you that. So I asked Jerry, I said, Jerry, I want to ask you a question about diamonds. I said, okay. I said, "Um, I want to understand what the setting for a diamond is. I want to understand how that works. I said, are there different settings for diamonds? He said, yeah. He said, they're somewhat universal, but he said there's different prongs. I'm not going to say this well. If, if you feel like you want a better understanding, please ask Jerry, but I'm going to give you the dumbed-down version. Uh, and so he says um, said there's three or four-prong diamonds, and the nice thing about um, a four-prong um, setting for a diamond, I should say, is that it will not only hold the diamond more secure, but it actually squares off the edges. It makes it look better. So I asked him, I said, so would you, in your opinion, would you say the, the way that a diamond is set or the setting for the diamond is just as important as the diamond. He said, absolutely. Number one, if there is not a proper setting, that diamond's going to be lost. Number two, the setting for the diamond drastically impacts how the diamond is displayed. Here's the point. The way that we offer ourselves before him, that is, in many cases, the diamond. The way that we communicate with him, that is the diamond. But the way we interact with other people is the setting that allows that diamond to be displayed properly. And the truth of it is that that diamond is only going to be as good as the setting in which we support it and showcase it. We as a house can say all day long we want him to come in the room, but if we have an, inter- an opportunity, to welcome his presence to somebody who's hurting and we don't do it the setting is lacking and the diamond is at the very least going to be improperly displayed if not lost Isaiah 60 is is really interesting I I love the idea that that praise David says this as well that praise always requires sacrifice Um, you know, I, I like sports, most of you know that. Uh, Noah and I had lunch the other day, and we were talking about, we got on basketball, and we talked about basketball and about baseball, and, um, we talked about all kinds of sports. I, I really enjoy that. One of the things that that uh, is always fun for me, I was telling Noah that he follows. He's, he's an NBA guy, he follows all season. I just tend to follow during the playoffs. I'm kind of the bandwagon jumper, so to speak, I guess. Uh, NBA playoff bandwagon jumper. But um, one of the things that you always see is, especially in the big games, that they'll interview the winners in the locker room, and there's going to be at least a few people who give thanks to God. Right? You see that. It's just what happens. One of the things that, that I think is, is really interesting is when you see that, it's it's somebody will say, you know, uh, gosh, you know, I just want to give God the thanks and the glory and the praise. The reality of it is when you're talking about a sacrifice of praise A sacrifice of praise is something that costs you something. What I would suggest is, while I I, I believe them when this winner is saying, I'd like to give God praise and thanks, uh, I believe that they feel that way. What I would like to do is see somebody in the the loser's locker room give God praise and thanks. And that will identify to me that there's somebody that knows him. Why? Because he's not looking for praise. He's looking for praise that is a sacrifice. Any praise that is not a sacrifice is inferior praise. Praise that just comes as a result of what he's done is oftentimes a focus on what he's done and not his nature that's supposed to be displayed. About it, I'll say it. Praise that only focuses on what he's done after it's accomplished allows you to embrace the blessing of what he's done when he accomplishes it. Praise that actually focuses on who he is at the conclusion of what he's done allows you to inherit that nature of who he is through what he's accomplished. Me praising him because I have money to pay my car payment is great, and I will inherit that money to pay my car payment. Me praising him because he's good Throughout that process of needing money to pay my car payment will allow me to inherit his nature so the next time I need his car payment I can trust that he's going to provide because I've learned that he's the provider. So when you see this, that's why praise is is really the the basis of this. Isaiah 60 says this, the walls of our city are called salvation, but the gates are called praise. The gates are where things or people come and go. In fact, in other places, gates are described as pearls. When we talk about heaven, what do we call them? We're going to go through the what? Pearly gates, right? How are pearls formed? Friction and pressure. So, if this idea is that the walls of who we are in this house, as an example, are salvation, what's happening is... The walls of who he is is shored up by the process of us being made secure and made whole and him doing that work in us. However, the thing that's going to allow him to come and go through the gates is praise. If you don't feel like that makes sense, tell me how you walk through a wall to get in a city or if you just look for the door. The gates are praise. So what happens is, how many times, if praise is defined as a sacrifice, what is the point? How do we become a people who, when we go out, we actually are able to give sacrifices and thanksgiving to Him, and that we live, the most natural state is in a state of thanksgiving and praise to who He is, as an offering and a sacrifice, so that He comes in the room. That's why, literally, when you do things as a surrender, as a point of obedience in public, He comes in the room. Why? Because praise is the gate that welcomes him to the room. He's going to use that as an access point. He rides in on that. So it's not as if he just blesses that gift. He actually then just comes into the room. Why? Because praise becomes that gate. However, the gate of obedience is always going to have friction and pressure. That's how pearls are formed. So there's going to be pressure and friction that are applied. The next thing you find is good work. We're going to move through these two pretty quickly. There's actually a movement happening in the world um, where people are beginning to understand the power of generosity and benevolence. I don't know if you've heard about this, but um, there was a church the other day that I read about. Well, there were several. Um, there was, first of all, there was um, a church in Chicago that ordered pizzas during church, which I didn't see. Uh, some of you, it's after 1230. Some of you at the moment think it's a really good idea. Uh, but the uh, they, they order pizzas. So they, they bring the delivery person up front onto the stage. And they had been teaching about honor and giving, honor and gratitude. And so what they said is, um, they bring this delivery person up onto the stage. And they said, we'd like to give you a tip. And so the church... Gave, uh, gave her. I think it was the pastor. Maybe gave her a hundred dollars tip, and um, the the girl was removed and, and said thank you. The they didn't know her. It wasn't like you know, this. wasn't wasn't an actor. It wasn't on the news. So so it's not like that. This was it. wasn't a crisis actor that, that appeared to bring the pieces. So they this girl does this, and he says, "Now what I'd like to do is, if there's anybody in the room that the Lord um, has has." Hope to your heart that you're to bless her. We're just going to have her stand here for a minute if just like to come. She received $15,000 as a tip. $15,000. Coming to find out the story was she was a single mother of two children and was uh, working three jobs to try to care for her mother that was in poor health as well. Barely making money. This is how cool this is though. She went back, wasn't wasn't a believer, um, accepted the Lord right there, went back to work, and gave half of it to one of the other delivery drivers because she knew they had money. There's a church in Dallas, Texas, uh, this past week uh, on Easter that they decided that one of the things that they wanted to do was they had been saving all year long, and on Easter, they, there were several families that had overwhelming medical bills. And they gave over $10 million to families to pay off medical bills last Easter. Jerry sent me an email to the church um, that gave to veterans. Is that right? Jerry took up an offer and gave them to, to veterans in need. There is something that's happening. You realize that um, uh, I think it's Bill Gates that said it's his goal before he dies to have given away half of his wealth. Wealthiest man in the world, not that I'm not saying he's not a believer, but not that I know of, is wanting to give away half of his wealth. There's something that's happening within this idea of generosity. Now, this is not the only aspect of good works, but as an example... If someone has no food and you have extra food, it is sufficient for you to just pray that God would bless them. However, while they do need your prayer, what they need at that moment is what? Food. You have more food than you need. They have none. Your your prayers are wonderful, but they're still hungry. So that's one of the reasons that is the sacrifice, is literal good work. And if I can be honest, this has not always been our house's strong suit, and we're changing this. We're just going to change this because we, we have a, a very easy time offering the Lord something. But it, scripturally speaking, if we do not demonstrate this by the way we care for people, we are liars. And it, at the very least, the way that the world looks at our uh, relationship with Him, it doesn't demonstrate accurately that we know him in his nature in the way that we say we do if we don't demonstrate it. One of the most concerning things happening in our country today that started as insulation is now moving into isolation where people as where we as individuals try to avoid pain the things that make us uncomfortable. It's very, very common that that it first begin, begins as insulation and then moves into isolation, and we try to avoid situations that make us uncomfortable. Sometimes the reality is we need to be exposed to need that makes us hurt, how they hurt, so that it will move us in compassion to do something about it. But we don't like that. I'm trying to be as real as I can be. We just don't. Like seeing a child who's hungry. Now, I, I, Tasha and I are, are very blessed, and, and um, you know, thank goodness we've got plenty of food. In fact, I'm, I'm, man, we're going to have revival here, and then when I get home, I get to have a whole other revival. Tosh is an incredible cook, so I get to enjoy that when I get home today. But the reality of it is, it makes me very uncomfortable when I see somebody who doesn't have Now, the challenge, though, is when I begin to insulate myself, because I get to choose whether I see that or not see that, so I begin to insulate myself. Then I begin to isolate myself. As soon as you isolate yourself from those that are in pain, what you actually do is you neglect your responsibility to impact their pain. I'm not saying that you, you. I'm not saying you inundate yourself. I'm not saying that it, that you lose the burden for his part so that you can have a burden for everybody that's in pain. What I am saying is the only way that you'll Actually be able to demonstrate the burden for his heart correctly is when you impact those around you. And the only way that you'll actually have the impact you're supposed to have on those around you is when you have a burden for his heart. See how these things connect? That's how it's done right. And it's interesting because doctors actually agree that the majority of mental illness is caused by an attempt to avoid pain. starts as an attempt to avoid processing a painful situation. So we have these things in our lives that then shore us up. One of the most powerful things I read recently, I think I was telling Mom and Jerry about this when we were in New York, is, um, is that there was this woman that leads that now leads the Crisis Pregnancy Center um, in um, Washington, D.C. And um, she was a, a very powerful lawyer in Washington, D.C. Her husband was, was um, I believe, an attorney or worked with the government. Both of them had very, very, very good jobs, very successful careers. And they felt a really strong call to start adopting children. They actually quit their jobs and um, they now work in the crisis pregnancy center, so it's not like they're unemployed, but they left very, very successful careers for a major pay cut so that they could make an impact, they've now adopted nine children. They can't have any. They've adopted nine children because of the need for adoptions. I was reading an article by her because um, some of you are familiar with Lou Engle. Um, Lou Engle is 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 very very prominent in her movement, specifically praying for the ending of abortion in our country. And I was reading an article she was speaking at an engagement of his in DC to pray for the ending of abortion in our country. she stood up and she said this, and I thought this was really powerful. She said, I believe that we need to pray that God would end abortion. But the reality is, the day abortion stops in this country, there's going to be 4,200 babies born that are not going to have a home because people are not going to want them. Are you going to take them? The point is, it's very easy to insulate and isolate ourselves and say, this is wrong but not actually have a vested interest in the, the, the result of the change. Does that make sense? We can say all day long, and I'm I'm I, I want that to stop. But the reality of it is it, it's very easy to say that that um you know well we should do more to feed the homeless, but when's the last time we fed a homeless person? the, the truth of it is when we look at the way this is supposed to work, um, it's, it's much, much, much easier for us to be anti-abortion than it is for us to be pro-life. And when you see this, it's, uh, you, this goes down the line. It's much easier for us to be against refugees coming into the country when we've never met one. It's much easier for us to say that everybody that's poor needs to get a job when we've never cared for anybody that's poor. The reality of it is, the, the, the issue we have, in my opinion, is that it's, it's so difficult, and we get frustrated. I get frustrated with, in our country with social programs and all the issues, but the reality of it is, if we lay down the role of us caring for people... So it's very easy for us to step back and say, well, we need to not have all these social programs, but us not care for people that need care for. You get my point? How can we be a people that care, that genuinely care? How can we be a people that when we drive by Walmart and there's people standing out there with a sign, that it does something to our heart? That we don't get annoyed by the panhandler. It does something to our heart. When it stops doing something to our heart, we've missed it. Jesus, regularly it says, was moved with compassion. I'm not saying that, that we do need to have all of that stuff. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a political statement. My point is it needs to become personal again. Because part of it becoming personal again is the sacrifice. Part of it becoming personal again is how we keep the fire burning. Because there is something that happens when you touch people that you can say this is on behalf. Lord, as that happens, his nature is demonstrated because he's a God of compassion. He's a God that cares. The third thing that you can find, we're gonna close this is gonna be quick, is fellowship. Fellowship starts with him primarily. I would like to argue that our fellowship with one another will be anemic if our fellowship with him is lacking. It's not just about how we get together and, and we had a great time yesterday. All the guys got together, it was awesome. It was absolutely awesome. I look forward, we're gonna do it again, we're gonna do it on a regular basis. Um, get together and talk about the Lord and talk about, I don't know, wakeboarding and, and talk about all kinds of stuff. I don't, Doug and I may learn to wakeboard. Um, but uh, Doug's going to teach us to ice fish, and we're going to, and guys going to teach him to wakeboard, maybe, I guess. I don't know. But when, you know, when you're, that's great. But I think that if, if that's all it is, if our fellowship with him is not the primary point of fellowship, then any fellowship we have with one another is going to be anemic. I'll just be honest with you. I have better things to do than spend my time at Starbucks on a Saturday morning. We all do, but the, but I want to do that because what we have together as family is important and it means something to me. We all have friends. We all have family. We all have people that we like. You could, you know, we could take anybody and do that. But the reality is, there's something different. So when it starts with this. This idea of fellowship actually in this scripture means to eat or drink something. Some would actually say it is an exchange of life. Many of us have no issue fellowshipping out of convenience. It actually has to come into the realm where it costs me to work as a setting for sustainable revival. Say that again. Many of us have no issue with the idea of fellowship if it's convenient. To spend time with somebody, to invest into people in relationships that are comfortable and convenient, doesn't cost you anything. The setting for this was sacrifice. To exchange with people and to actually say, you bring the meat, I'll bring the veggies. That exchange is what this is actually talking about. Church does not count. sorry about you. Church doesn't count. doesn't. What this is talking about is where we actually, this is the coolest thing, fellowship here, it says in in the Greek lexicon, could actually be defined as a relationship where we break off a piece of the bread of who we are and feed the other, and they break off a piece of the bread of who they are and feed us. I don't know the last time you've torn a piece of yourself off, but it probably isn't the easiest and most comfortable thing in the world. And that's what this fellowship means, to eat and drink of one another. And so this is talking about having levels of relationship. Some relationships are going to be very, very deep and vulnerable, and you need those. Some relationships are going to be less deep and vulnerable, and you need those. Jesus had... The multitudes, the 70, the 12, and the 3, and then John the Beloved. We get that, but the reality is you've got to have all of those. If you only have the deep ones, that John the Beloved relationship, you're not doing it right. It is not only something that is, is in, in, an anemic version of what fellowship is supposed to be that doesn't serve you well. It's not serving the house and the house's ability to, res, to sustain revival well. It's not serving the house's ability to sustain revival well. That's, that's just reality. <clears throat> Fellowship at times even requires us to have exchange with people that aren't in our sphere, that we might not be comfortable or compatible with. Anybody can spend time with friends and people that they have things in common with. But it is like, uh, that is like yeah, This kind of funny. I wrote this on the plane. Uh, it's, that is like, because I was smelling food. Uh, that is like having only a steady diet of vegetables. Vegetables are great for you. But if your only fellowship is with people that are the same people that you care about, your friends, those close relationships that you have, that is like having a steady diet of vegetables. You need veggies. But with only veggies, you ain't going to make it. It's not going to sustain you in the way that it should. I mean, personally, I would just go right in to meat, but I will leave that alone. Uh, this is why many times he will use the strangest people that I know to give me the word that I need. He will use people that aren't in this church. He will use people I don't even know if they're saved to give me the word that I need. Why? Because he wants to prove to me the necessity of me staying vulnerable and actually interacting with people. I read this really crazy story about this guy. I'll close with this. This really crazy story about this guy that um, he actually... Uh, The Lord, he had just gotten saved. I think he was 18 or 19 years old. And um, the Lord wanted him, or he felt like the Lord had instructed him to start a a, a Barnes & Noble ministry. So what he would do is he would go to Barnes & Noble and and just hang out and and spend time there. I think most Barnes & Nobles have Starbucks. Uh, So drink coffee and hang out and and try to minister to people. Just try to to pray for people, try to give encouragement, you know, whatever it is. Just share the Lord. I mean, you know how, when you first get saved, you know how it is. You're like everybody needs this, you know. You probably need a little bit more of that, but that's that's what he did. So he one day he was at Barnes and Noble, walking up and down the aisles, and there was two kind of odd-looking ladies. Um, that um, that the Lord told him to go pray for So he walked up to him and, and said, "I feel like the, the Lord told me that I'm to pray for you." And they said, we well, are witches." And he said. Said, I'm supposed to pray for you. Is that okay? And he said, Well, you don't care that we're witches. I don't care. The Lord doesn't care. Do you care? So he prayed for him. And both got saved. Media. That's not the full cool part of the story. The next part of the story is he asked them to prophesy over him. I'm not saying that that's a good idea. I'm not saying that we need to be careless. I'm simply saying. That the Lord specifically told him that there was a word that one of these women had that was a word that he needed. She actually prophesied that one of the ladies actually prophesied and quoted scripture that she's never heard or read in her entire life. Prophesied to him for over five minutes about the ministry the Lord was going to be leading into. All of this was fulfilled. She quoted scripture the whole way through. He's never even read Bible. she had been saved 30 minutes. Or 30 minutes, 30 seconds. What my point is, is is, uh, I'm I'm not even saying that's a good idea. I'm just simply saying there are times that if we insulate and isolate ourselves, we can actually be insulating and isolating ourselves from the very individuals that have the bread that we need. How do we stay vulnerable to allow the Lord to do this? Because sometimes, as weird as it is, sometimes the biggest sacrifice we can give is to allow others into our place with Him. Me and Jesus is really comfortable. I'm good. Me and Him, I'm good to go. Like, I can get alone with Him, and we can talk and hang out. It's great. As soon as you walk in the room, the cost changes. So sometimes the biggest sacrifice we can offer is the fellowship that allows somebody else into our exchange with Him. These are the three things that it says are crucial so that we can have a fire that remains. Once again, remember the point of this was that He brings the fire. It's our job to sustain it. The three things that He says is we have to be a people of thanksgiving and praise that are continually offering ourselves in ways that cost us. We have to be a people of good works where we're actually willing to give and to pour ourselves out and to put ourselves in situations, hear me, where... We allow him to define if we're loving or clinging. Remember, the thing that prohibited the rich young ruler from welcoming the kingdom of heaven was that his trust was in his bank account. And the third thing is, and it's not, good works is not just always going to be money, but I'm just using that as an example because it's immeasurable. The, the third thing is this idea of fellowship. And so, I'm really, I don't talk like this very often, but I'm believing that things are going to change. And I actually am believing that we're going to start seeing measurable changes. I mean something that you, I'm not talking about things like, like, um, that will, will, you know, it'll, it'll be, can't put a finger on it. Yeah, things are better. How is it? Well, I don't really know. They just seem better. I mean measurable change in our lives. And one of the things I was reading the other day was New um, York Uh, New Jersey, there's a church there that decided to start adopting parts of the city to pray for every day. Okay? So they have actually adopted 33% of the city of New York has been adopted by this church, where each person in the church has a street that they pray for every day. In the last 18 months since this has started, they've seen a 35% drop in crime. change. I'm actually believing, and this is way out there, but I actually think that, you know, some of the growth we've seen in our city, even new businesses coming to town, that's a result of what he's doing here. You know that, right? The Paul may have paid for it, but his presence made the way. We're going to see continual growth where people are well and they're blessed just a result as a result of what's happening. The rising tide really does float all boats. And sometimes that, that boat may not even be recognized that they're in the same ocean. So, all right. Um, I'm going to end the live stream because the last thing we're going to do is we close. It's just for us.